I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. Today's episode is a two-parter, where I have a conversation with the two women leading the organization Vote Run Lead. Vote Run Lead is an organization that trains women to run for office and to win. During the first half of this episode, I talk with Erin Velarde, the founder and CEO of Vote Run Lead. You may remember my conversation with Erin Velarde in an episode from last year, when we discussed America's track record of electing women and why we lag behind so many other countries in relation to having equal gender representation in government. While Erin has returned to discuss Vote Run Lead's plans to not only achieve gender parity in elected positions, but to exceed it. She says that it's high time for all 50 states to have women as the majority in elected positions. In the second half of this episode, I talk with Rhonda Briggins, the co-founder and board member of Vote Run Lead. Rhonda and I discuss the barriers women face when running for office. We also talk about the unique challenges of having to run for office during a pandemic. But according to Rhonda, the women who went through Vote Run Leads training were helped in many ways because of the pandemic. And she explains all of that in this episode. But before we move on to the episode, I just want to mention that Vote Run Lead is focusing on electing women to state legislative seats. And over the years, I've spoken to many organizational leaders who are focused on these same races. And there's a simple explanation as to why. All of the most meaningful and important legislation happens at the state legislative level. Everything from voting rights to abortion access to minimum wage increases, just to name a few, that all happens at the state legislative level. So that's the end of my sermon on the importance of state legislative races. Here is my conversation with Erin Velarde and Rhonda Briggins of Vote Run Lead. So Erin Velarde, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I just say thank you for joining me again. Um, I think the last conversation we had was during the 2020 election cycle, before the election actually, and we were talking about our favorite conversation, our favorite topic, which is gender parity in elected office, right? And in America, it's not great. I think when we were talking before, the number stood at 20% of women who held elected positions, you know, in comparison to the the population of women in the country, it's like 51%, right? So 20, 20% versus 51%. We do not have gender parity. And and I know that 2020, that election cycle there, it was historic in that a record number of women were running for office, you know, and the same thing was true in 2018. Have the numbers come out to say that that's helped close the gender gap in elected positions at all? Absolutely. So the 2018 and 2020 election cycles absolutely had a spike, if you will, in the pace of which women were getting elected. And we're somewhere now around 25, 26% of the overall, if you're kind of looking at all the possible, you know, 519,000 offices that are in the country. You know, so for every three men, men, there's only one woman, right? We still need to make a greater change. And in the state legislatures, which I know we're going to talk more about today, we are actually at an all-time high of 31%. And there's a lot of disparities around different states and different regions that are, you know, we only have one state in America that's actually past 50%, while we have others that are 11 and 13% representation in their legislatures. So, you know, but gender parity, I'm not talking about reflective democracies. You know, you mentioned parity. I want to make sure that we're actually the majority. Um, and so how do we... How do we change the narrative to say, oh, I want I want men and women to be equal? It's like, no, nah, I want to go and see what it would be like, actually, if we did have 60, 70 percent women running our government, running our businesses. And, you know, let's give that a try for the next couple of millennia. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, you know, before we go on, I can't go on without acknowledging the historic win of Kamala Harris as vice president. Yeah. Right. Like that's one win we have to acknowledge. Right. What was also exciting in the 2020 presidential race was to see the number of women that actually did run for president. Um, her historic run for the presidency resulting, of course, in her selection as VP, but right. um, so many fantastic women um, that decided to step up. 
So I think it's fantastic that you're looking for a majority, going back to your, your first answer, looking for a majority and, you know, not just, you know, 51%, not just parity, but a majority. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious as to how you're going to do that. But before we go into that, I want to talk about the state legislative seats, because I know that Vote Run Lead focuses specifically on state legislative seats. You know, why is that so important? Why are state legislative seats so important? Well, we just launched, it's called Run 51. Uh, we just launched this new program, which will focus exclusively on the state legislatures. We are, of course, still training every woman to run for every seat all the time um, through our other programs and our team. We've almost doubled in size to, to make room for this really specific program because this office is so critical. And I'll tell you why. It is where the fight is. We know whether it's you know paid family leave or voter access and and then the voter suppression bills that are happening, you know to women's rights and how we're going to get out of this economic recession with women at the center. The top issues are being fought at the legislative level right now. Um, we also know that the state legislatures are these democratic laboratories. You know, think about marriage equality that happens state by state by state, um, and those kind of things can really change. They can be a sea change for. Um, you know, how we how we want to achieve things that we can't get done at the federal level. And there's a lot of experiments that can be also run at the at the state legislative level. And it busts those myths that women can't get elected because there's so many valuable and visible roles, um, you know, around majority leader, minority leader, chairmanship positions, chairwomanship positions, I should say, that, you know, that really show and demonstrate electability and viability that you sometimes just don't get with the few House and congressional seats we, we have. And we know that at the state level, women govern differently. All the research is looks at the state level where they're doing and solving for hyperpartisanship, they're passing budgets on time. And, and even further, it is a stepping stone for, you know, future runs. If you do want to run about 30% of the women in Congress right now are, we had seats in the state house. So I just want to mention um, some numbers, right? Because it's really important that people understand what we're looking at. And also I want to talk about when you talk about, you know, that's where the power lies. When you hear reports about voter suppression bills passing and when you hear reports about, you know, abortion bills passing, right, that are making it much, much harder for women to, to attain abortions, those are happening. All of that stuff is happening at the state level. People should understand that, right? You know, it's not the sexiest position necessarily. Actually, I think it is kind of sexy state legislative positions, but those are the, the positions that come to people's minds, right, during an election year. They think about the federal elections, you know, they think about the presidency, the vice presidency, but the power for Democrats and the power to, you know, to, to, to overturn these voter suppression bills, that happens at the state legislative level, right? And those positions. I want to point out some stats here. Um, Republicans right now, nationally, I think they hold about 54 or 55% of the state legislative seats. And Democrats, in comparison, hold about like a little under 45%. And that that's actually kind of a big deal. You know, I mean, that's, that's, it's only about five or 6%. But, you know, in that five or 6%, you can do a lot of damage to, to democracy in relation to voter suppression. And another thing I want to mention is that in this year, 2021, you know, which is kind of an off year, it isn't considered an election year, there are over 200, I think you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, there are 200 state legislative elections happening nationally, not nationally, I think just on fee state, but there are 200 positions. Yes, that's right. Um, so I'm less concerned about the partisan makeup of the state legislatures, because we, we need you know, center-right women who are pro-democracy. We need center-right women who are pro-women's rights. We need center-right women who are, you know, pro-putting women at the center of the economic agenda as we come out of the um, of the recession. We And we need women on the left for the same thing. Um, and so I believe they're there. I believe the party structure, the, the GOP today, does not is not interested in putting them in leadership. 
Um, in fact, the opposite, right? They're looking, I think, for women who, um, you know, toe the crazy line right now that the, you know, are, are, that we need these voter suppression laws. And I say that as a fully 100% nonpartisan organization. Uh, we're not a bipartisan organization. We're not trying to do one for one. And, you know, we're trying to have a sea change around women's leadership where it is completely normal in both parties for there to be uh, feminist leaders, for there to be uh, anti-racist leaders, for there to be, um, you know, pro-democracy leaders, because we can't have one party that is actually anti-democratic and, you know, small d that is undermining our democracy at every level. Um, and I think there is this struggle within the Republican Party right now. And I think there's an opportunity for center right women to take to take that space. And, you know, we're we're here to encourage the leadership of women to do to, to create a different future, one that we haven't yet seen and one that is definitely not defined by D and R. And that's why I don't, you know, that's why I do movement level politics and not partisan politics. I, I truly believe in the transformative power of of women, of women of color, of of the rural women, of the young women that I get to work with every day. Um, so in that sense, yes, I, I also think, listen, just because also someone has a D at the end of their name doesn't mean they're good. And someone has an R at the end of the name, you know, like those things can some it's very subjective to the region that you live in as well. Um, but what matters is when you get inside these state houses, are you going to fight for things that are sane and pragmatic and reasonable that are that open our democracy um, that, you know, actually affect positively the lives of people in your district? Right. That stop things from staying small and actually share the wealth and the, and the beauty that is this country. And those are the kind of values that we are um you know, asking women if they're attracted to that, then Vote Run Lead is the place for you. And we're going to give you the tools to figure out how to get into these sexy state legislatures. I love that you think it's cool. Um, and, you know, and how to get in and actually make bills and pass policy, because this is the level where women can write the legislation they want to see. Yeah, I mean, I mean I've heard that from a lot of organizations, uh, you know, the, having two functioning, healthy parties is really good for a government, right? It's really, but I just don't, See, I just cannot foresee the GOP in its current state or in, you know, any future state in the next five years supporting women who hold those democratic values, supporting women who, you know, support bodily autonomy. You know, they support candidates generally, regardless of gender, who are kind of anti-democratic right now. So I, I know that we need to have like a really strong, really strong parties on both sides, but I, it's really hard for me to see that happening. Yeah, I I think that's true. I'm not being Pollyanna-ish about what is the current state right now. Um, I think that is absolutely true. And, um, you know, particularly around what Trump has done to the Republican Party. That's a, this is an, let's have an honest conversation, right, about, about what that means. I luckily have been doing this work for almost, God, I want to say like 19 years now, that I also know of a time and I know of the research of where Women have come together traditionally across the aisle as a function of us getting into government, um, have done a better job at collaboration of being able to put the things that we disagree with on the side and actually come together on the things we do agree with. And so there's a real track record for women that that's the track record we have to get back to. And it does not mean losing our values around our own bodily autonomy or losing those. It means figuring out where there are where there are avenues for alignment. And if they're not, you know, Bipartisanship for the sake of bipartisanship is not, you know, <laughs> isn't the end goal, right? Bipartisanship isn't the uh, isn't the end goal. Work, you know, working together for the good of the people is the end goal. Um, and so, where on a local level and a state legislative level, how do we support more center right women that have feminist values, but maybe small government or anti tax or you know have a, a sort of you know more fiscally conservative, right? 
Um, and some of these women are women of color. Some of these women are immigrants, first generation, right? Especially I, I know in our network, they have all become independents. They do not actually align with the current Republican Party. So we have this group of independent women who are not Democrats, who align on our values around women's leadership, around feminism. Um, there is room if we can get them elected. That's how you're going to see it. Otherwise, we have to out, you know, we have to oust every single Democratic man, <laughs> right? Like, which isn't, you know, isn't actually a, a, a viable strategy either. Right, right. We have, to, you know, are there some spaces? And when I think you see success, where you see success on a state legislative level to do that um, is going to be key. It's going to be replicable. It doesn't mean, though, and I, and I want to say this, it doesn't mean that those women are at the center. I think we're very clear at Vote Runly that the women at the center right now who are the ones who have been at the margins, which is women of color, which is lower income women getting into political and electoral power, which is, you know, young women and queer women and rural women who have never had seen a woman legislator in their district you know, in some of these rural communities, it's it's making sure that they're at the center of the work and then figuring out on the outer rings, how do we be inclusive of folks who, you know, may not be with us on, you know, some of the other issues, but are going to be necessary in the game of politics to get stuff done. Right. So talking about bringing everyone to the table, right, all women to the table. You know, when people think about there being a lack of parity or lack of equality or, you know, women being in the majority in elected positions, you know, I think that the, the debate has been fairly simplistic. You know, it's just sexism. People don't want to vote for women, but it's much more complex than that. I mean, yes, there's some, you know, barriers that are related. They're all actually related to sexism, but we need to start thinking about, you know, these systemic barriers. Speaking of which, you know, we're talking about childcare um, and we're talking about women running and, you know, talking about you know, creating an environment that is equitable so that all women can run for office, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, in our recent past, you know, running for elected office was for the wealthy, it was for right. the privileged, right? right? You know, even for women. Um, so I think when we have these debates about women not being elected to office, I think the debates have been fairly simplistic. You know, we'll just say, oh, it's sexism. People don't right. want to vote for women. And, you know, the underlying reason is sexism, but it's much more complicated than that, right? It's multi-layered. Multi There's some systemic barriers, you know, that keep women from running for office. Even we can, if we can get past the hump of people being comfortable with women in office, but you know, women have, you know, their, their economic inequalities, right? right. Um, it's very expensive to run for office. Even if you have some resources at your disposal, it is, you know, time is money, right? You know, women have to take time off for, for, from work, take time mm -hmm. off for childcare, you know, childcare, it, you know, adds an extra expense and time that women don't have to run. So there's all of these systemic barriers that keep women from seeking office at the same rates that men seek elected positions. Right. You know, how do we get past that? That's a great question. The systemic barriers, there's twofold. One is the, um, the system we live in that wasn't built by or for us, right? So let's talk about the childcare. We have an alumni, Luba Gretchen Shirley, who runs Vote Mama. She's working on legislation in nine states across the country. I think it's passed now. Now we're, she's on to, you know, getting the other, you know, 31, or 41, excuse me, um, to pass a law that says childcare expenses can be covered as part of your campaign, right? That's a, that's a right now solution, but the bigger solution is getting those women into the elected office so that they can write different kinds of policy, that we can use technology so that women from rural communities can Skype in to do a vote and don't have to come to the Capitol and spend a week away from their families. We need as part of this 
infrastructure, the understanding that the, the work that women have been doing that has been keeping our country afloat, both as essential workers and as caregivers and now at-home school teachers, needs to be counted in a way that is, shows up in our pocketbooks and shows up in our policies. Um, so we need different laws that says maternal, you know, maternity leave is 100% paid, paid family leave, you know, sick leave, all of these things all it is is the burden goes back onto women to take it out of our pocketbooks, our time, our energy. We're losing that talent. So that we actually have to pass laws that mandate companies do these things. We have to pass laws that mandate this is the norm about how we are going to operate as a country. It's a little chicken in the egg, right? If you don't get people with those lived experiences in there, it's really hard to lobby. So I need my sisters to lobby. I need my sisters to run for office, right? But the other systemic stuff that we need to talk about is the democracy piece. So why more center-right women can't get in um, to public office right now is because the primary system rewards extremes. So the primary system means that if it's a closed primary, only people who are registered in that party can vote in that primary, which means that the party faithful or the base, right, which is often more extreme than the regular person who lives in that neighborhood is going to reward the extreme. And so you get people who, you know, run to the right or run to the left, right? Uh, when it turns out that most of us in the country are not really that tightly affiliated with sort of Democrat or Republican. You know, we kind of like to claim our independence. So if we have a party system that has changed, if we have things like ranked choice voting, where you can um, rank the candidates you like instead of having to choose just one, all of these, we actually see more gender parity, more racial diversity goes up. So when you have an open primary system, when you have ranked choice voting, when you have campaign finance laws that have matching funds in your city or your state, you see a different crop of people run for office. So we need both those things. We need the, the policies and the laws inside of the legislature. I need a few of us to kind of like make it happen in the not so great environment that it is right now. And then I need us, uh, the rest of us to think about how we can be advocates for real systemic change on our democracy and how we actually operate as a democracy. Right. You know, is that one of the chicken and egg scenarios? Because I don't think anyone's really focused on that right now. There's some really big, you know, fights that are happening right now. We're trying to, you know, you know, get on the other side of a pandemic. I don't think anyone is working on, for instance, lobbying for ranked choice voting. I know they have that in the New York City mayoral race, but like mm -hmm. nationwide, that is not on people's mind. Just to use that as an example. Is, is that something that Vote Run Lead is doing? We're, we're definitely advocating from the from the sort of gendered perspective that it, it makes a difference in the number of women that are running a city. Because uh, in this, I think it's the 19 cities that actually have ranked choice voting. You see a greater number of women and people of color and women of color on the city councils and actually that serve as mayors. Um, there's a great group in Minnesota called Fair Vote Minnesota. Uh, there's an organization in D.C. called Represent Women that actually talk about all these uh, systemic changes. And we need amplifiers. So I need the Stacey Abrams of ranked choice voting, right? Because right, right now we have the, the Stacey Abrams of voter suppression and gerrymandering, right? She's talking about the districts. That's another that's another way to do this. When we draw these lines about who gets to vote for who and what geographic areas, the party's incentives are to keep themselves in power. The people's incentive is to get the best representation. So who should draw those lines? The people, right? Um, and when you bring it to a state legislature, it's uh, most states have a state legislative process about 14 states have an independent commission and some have some blend, but that's all happening in the state legislature when we redraw these lines. So if you don't want to be here in eight, nine years, when we do the census again, you we have got to see a sea change of women in the legislatures who care about our democracy. So it's it, there is a push right now to, to say, and we need women as secretaries of state. That's another one because we saw some badass women there. Arizona Secretary of State, the Colorado Secretary, like that we're just killing yeah. it this year with. But if we're not there to be the role models, to sort of get it over that hump where we, you know, 31% is good, 51% is better, 
right? Like that's, we, we gotta, we have to take over um, because just it's the dysfunction is, is so high. And we know that women on the right and the left get into government to actually do stuff, to be pragmatic and get stuff done. We're not that interested in wearing the badge and cutting the ribbon. We're interested in writing policy. Right. Because, you know, we've been at the center of policies that don't, that don't work for us. Right. I mean, like childcare, you know, to keep coming back to that example. So I think it was Ayanna Presley. And I love quoting this um, from her. What is it? Um, the people who are closest to the pain should be closest to the power. Right. That's right. And that's where it is. But, you know, again, it's that chicken and egg scenario. So just to close out, and I'm really excited about the Run 51 campaign. And um, actually, you know what? Can you tell me what are your... Yes. What are some of your key initiatives as a part of Run 51 to kind of counter some of these things that you've talked about? So Run 51, our goal is to move America's state legislatures from 31% to 51%. And we have a bunch of resources to help women do that all across the country. But we're actually going deep in three targeted states, New York, Minnesota, and Georgia, to run some experiments. We've hired staff on the ground to see in the next two election cycles, 2022, 2024, how how close can we get to 51%? They're roughly all about the same in the low 30s. Um, they're different partisan makeups. Um, so we'll have some you know foundational understanding of how we move from this average number to the majority in two election cycles. Um, you're also going to get every woman in America will get a 10-week toolkit on how to get ready to run for the state legislature. There's personal coaching sessions that are part of this package. There's a beautiful video series of women who've run for the state ledge to inspire you and to tell you, you know, the truth about what it's like inside. Um, and then, of course, we're going to have trainings online and all across the country. We're going to have a ton of trainings in those three key states where we're really looking at how we do this. My goal is to hand a playbook over to the other, you know, 46 states and say, because Nevada is now, you know, we, we got Nevada at 60 percent. Um, and how do we get there? How do we actually get there and accelerate? That's amazing. I'm excited. I'm excited. So you're going to be the Stacey Abrams of like state legislative seats for women, right? When you hand this playbook over, just the, the same way that she handed over, you know, the playbook to other states, you know, to, to, to win like they did in Georgia. Anyway. I should be so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> we all want to be Stacey Abrams anyway. Well, you know, Erin Bellardi, thank you so much for all of your work. I'm really looking forward to seeing Run 51 get off the ground. I'm, I'm you know, excited to see this majority that I know is going to happen, yeah. right? 60%, let's hope nationally. And just yeah. thank you so much for everything. Thank you. And I encourage folks to go over to VoteRunLead.org. On our homepage is a tool. We launched a new research tool where you can scroll on your own state and find out how many years it's going to take for your state to get to 51%. I'm going to do that. You know, it may be depressing, but I'm going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you. Rhonda Briggins, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, Jennifer. I know you all have a lot of important work to do, you know, with the midterms coming up. You know, but one of the things that I've always liked about Vote Run Lead's approach to preparing women to run for office is that you always say that you don't just train them to run for office, right? You train them to win. And I know you've had a lot of wins. I think in 2020, you had your trainees won uh, like over 50% of the races that they were in, and which is pretty remarkable, you know, considering, you know, what the percentage is nationally. How do you do it? Like, what's the secret ingredient in your training? I, you know what? I People ask us that all the time. Um, I we, we provide the basics, you know, the basics of how to run, how to campaign, how to do field work, how to do a speech, how to fundraise. Um, but I think we go a little step further. We get into the spirit and the psyche of the women. Um, we make sure you understand from a philosophical, spiritual, mental position, you know, what you have to do. We kind of, uh, you know, um, train you to wrap your mind around and, and really begin to focus on this journey that you're about to take. 
um, to be open-minded and very inclusive of everyone who needs to go on the journey with you, making sure that you're including your family and in touch with that. And then finally, we make sure that you um, deal with self-care along the way, your mental care, your physical care, um, uh, you know, your spiritual care as you go on this journey, because you're going to need to be a whole person to win and to make it. And so I think that's the difference that we bring than the other trainings and where we go beyond just giving you the basics of how to run a campaign. We make this an experience of how to win a campaign. Because I know that you recruit candidates. Is the recruiting process part of it? Do you just pick people who kind of have that ingredient, who kind of have that, you know, that je ne sais quoi, that's something that connect with people and already kind of understand that self-care is important? Not necessarily. I mean, you know, the, the other beautiful thing I think that's for us, you know, we're not looking for the top tier because the top tier don't, you know, don't always equate a great candidate. Um, you know, we, we, we go out and seek the diamonds in the rough. You know, most of the people that, you know, wouldn't even think about running. And um, and in our recruiting process, we kind of show them um, where they're already prepared. You know, we you'll see a lot of our, our little tagline, run as you are. Um, most of the time, women are already prepared and the world has prepared us. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're homemakers. We take care of our communities. We take care of our children. We take care of our family members. Um, we're already doing budgets. We do stump speeches every day as we tell our children to get up and get ready and prepare for school. Uh, we're campaigning all the time um, of, of things that just need to be done in the community and every, all around us. And we, you know, we deal with politics in our families, in our churches, in the school. And so we say run as you are. And so when you run as you are, you are you you as a woman don't understand that you're more equipped than you think you are for these positions and these jobs. And, um, you know, again, we just come in and give you the basics and wrap that around these other pieces to to help and guide you to victory. Right. You know, but to be honest, you know, those diamonds in the rough, they probably have the toughest time of it because all of those systemic barriers that keep women generally from running for office, they're amplified for those women. So what do you say to those women? You approach somebody and, you know, she's passionate about her community and she's like, Rhonda, you know what? I lost my job during the pandemic. I've got, you know, kids and I just don't have time to do this. Right. Well, you know, how do you convince those women that they are probably they can probably do this? Well, first of all, because of all of those things that you talked about, those are the things that most of the time that push these women into wanting to run in the first place um, because they, they were at the school system and saw the injustice and, and, and saw the, the lack of transparency and saw the lack of support and, 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 and saying, you know, so I, I'm the one that get less just because I'm a single mom, you know, not because I wanted to be a single mom, right? Um, there are different circumstances that might have led them that way. But but I'll be darned if I allow this system to dictate to me, you know, what my child can have and what support I can or not have based on different circumstances. So a lot of times those barriers are the ones that's propelling them to want to run. Now, once we get there, how do we knock those barriers down so that they could have success? And so those are, you know, a lot of things that we have help many of these women to see and do, you know, making sure that they have the necessary support that they need to run. And and I think the other thing, you know, we we try to keep it real with folks, Jennifer. You know, it's it's not going to be easy, you know, not at all. But we talk about the investment that's needed and necessary for all of us to get to creating these communities that we all desire to have. 
and and places where we we desire to to want to live in and that you are the author and the designer of those communities and your service in those communities is what's necessary to get us there. And so it is it is really kind of telling that story and having to um, paint a picture where they see themselves as the maker of these communities and the designers and the architects of these communities um, that is needed for, for all of our children. And, and where, you know, and it's not just about one group, but it's about everyone and being very inclusive and necessary for, for change and, and the desired outcomes that we're seeking. Did you notice a difference in 2020, you know, when people were campaigning, you know, during the pandemic, as far as like what women were reporting about what was happening on the ground? Because I remember when I interviewed people, you know, in 2018 and 2019, they were reporting, you know, sometimes, not all the time, you know, being confronted by constituents, you know, like, where are your children, you know, <laughs> you know, or, you know, saying something about the way they look or their, you know, their dress, you know, all of those sexist comments that women get on the campaign trail. Yeah, I'm going to assume that that was lessened this year because you couldn't go door to door, right? A lot of the stuff was remote. Did you hear the report? about that, like fewer microaggressions? Yeah, I, I, I think we probably had fewer microaggressions, but, you know, you, you had other barriers, you know? How do you now campaign when you don't have huge name recognition? How do you now get your message out during a pandemic? How do you... So it was other barriers created, right? Um, you don't have the money to do all of these flyers and you really can't go door to door. So what do you do? What do you do during this pandemic? How, you know, how do you utilize social media to tell your story? How do you, you know, get the different age groups? Because a lot of the seniors, you know, might have been challenged with technology. So how do you, you know, include all of those folks? So we had some some other barriers that also we they had to begin to to get over. I didn't hear much about, you know, how you look because shoot, everybody's looking a mess and was on um <laughs> <laughs> was on Zoom, right? right. Um, so you 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 didn't get you didn't get those types of, of things, but you did you you now you had to maneuver and try to figure out in a different way of um, getting your message, um, utilizing resources a little differently, using different other platforms and mechanisms that, um, you know, because people weren't even at the churches, right? Right. So, so you, you know, so you really had to be very creative in, in getting your message out, in communicating, in working towards moving and advancing your campaign this time around. But, but you know what? It was this great movement of, of women. And so I think it even helped because women came together like I've never seen them come together before, where organizations who normally were very insular and isolated began to engage and participate and and bring in to these different strategies of being, you know, including women candidates, giving them platforms of coming to speak before their constituents in a way that you've never seen before. So I, I think there were some positives that also came out of this to the point where men have been so annoyed with the whole <laughs> women's movement and was just like, okay, um, I, we think your time is up. <laughs> you know, you, you all have had your time and, and, you know, 
And so I think I, I think there's been some really good things that came out of this as well, Jennifer. Yeah, yeah, because Vote Run Leads candidates did really well. They did really, really well, right? But do mm-hmm. you think that you would have done better had there not been a pandemic? And I'm trying to be optimistic here, saying, you know, is, you know, 2022 going to be better for us? Is 2024 going to be better because we don't have those other barriers set up by the pandemic and there's just kind of energy pushing women into office? I'm, I'm just speculating. So, so again, I, I, I think, I, I think the pandemic helped us. I'm going to be honest with you. And I think the better part comes in um, is just what I said. It's going to be better because we're more organized. We're more focused. I mean, you had women who had never given to a, a, a campaign before now giving. You had more resources to give because, you know, people weren't going out and doing all of these other things. So they wanted to use their money for good, you know. So we saw, I don't know how many Zoom candidate fundraisers I were a part of and where, you know, you would just get from women groups, you know, five or $6,000 where we're getting twenty five, thirty thousand dollars $30,000, you know, two and 300 women on a call at a time excited um, and figuring out, you know, how else can I give? How can I help you? Looking at phone banking and those types of things much differently. You know what? I can't door knock in, in New York, but I can phone bank from Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and so you really saw, again, Jennifer, a different level of collaboration. I think it's going to be good because we now have created national infrastructure around the country and now shown people how they can have a role in races beyond their own community. But I'm curious, you know, because I know you said you think things are going to be good and I, and I hope they're going to be good. But if you get the sense, and I get this sense that, you know, now that the Biden administration is in office, you know, people are starting to to kind of relax. You know, you don't have all of those hashtags, you know, the blue wave and the pink wave. Do you think that we can keep that momentum up for as long as we need to, let's say, you know, get reach parity, gender parity, reach, you know, racial parity in government and, you know, kind of secure our democracy with these really good candidates who kind of care about the democracy? Jennifer, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I think you saw the same thing during the Obama administration. Now, what 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 I'm hoping is because of the Obama administration, because of what you're saying, you know, I'm hoping people don't get complacent again. Um, I'm 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 seeing you know, I'm in Georgia. We're gearing up for our our mayors, our mayoral race here, and and you know, then we'll be gearing up the year next year for for the gubernatorial race. I, you know, people, I'm I'm personally seeing that people are afraid of getting the uh, going back to complacency. People are afraid to get relaxed. The the extremists are not also are not giving up, right? So you're constantly having to battle where, you know, you can't go back in your corner and play nice. I mean, right after the election, as you saw, there still is this huge sentiment around the country um, somehow that the elections were stolen. And with with that, you are seeing folks still trying to play out. How how can we now take the voting rights (laughs) and and the rights? Of, of, of all of these people so that we can control the outcomes in the future of elections. And so, you know, across the country in almost every state, there were all these voter suppression bills that were passed and still in the process of trying to be passed. And, and folks are still having to fight, fight for their rights to vote, fight for um, equity and equality. So I, I just think people are, know, are in a place where they know 
there the fight will never probably never be over. But you know, you're right. There was a complacency. But if you think about the Biden administration and what's happening right now and what happened just what was it, five, six months ago? What is this? This mm-hmm. is June, January sixth, nothing has changed. That could happen again now. You know, I know this isn't about women running for office, but nothing has really changed. You know, in fact, voting, voter suppression has gotten worse, right? Since January sixth, since November. Yeah. Um, so people can't be complacent. That's just, you know, my only comment. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that, that's my point. I don't think people can be complacent. We're going to have to continue to fight. And I think that's what people have now realized that, you know what, this this is a, a, a you know, a continuing battle and we got to stay on the battleground. Yeah. So that brings me to my next question, because I want to talk about, you know, recruiting and convincing women to put themselves out there, you know, as leaders and run for office. Right. I know you're focused on state legislative races for women, but those same dangerous elements we talked about with January 6 exist at the state level. You know, that's another barrier that we don't really talk about. And the last administration kind of amplified all of that kind of hateful rhetoric against, you know, people of color, specifically, you know, particularly women. Right. And I'm, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of somebody, you know, you come to me and you're like, you know, I, I know you want to be a leader. I know you, you probably want to run for office. And I say, you know, but hey, I'm kind of scared. You know, you've got people like Marjorie Taylor Greene confronting people, you know, in the halls of Congress. In my state, Washington state, they've had more security at the state capitol than they've ever had. Right. I mean, so that's another thing that we have to consider, you know, with women. I, has anyone asked you about that? Well, I mean, again, I'm in Georgia. So as you saw, they, they arrested, um, they've been arresting legislators here. That's so, right. So, um, and, and, and women legislators, right? Black women legislators. We, you know, they arrested um, Nakima Williams, who's now in, in U.S. Congress, and um, Park Cannon, who is an openly um, queer woman, right? Right. And so, um, and, and she got arrested because the, the governor refused to let her into the bill signing of the voter suppression bill. Um, as they advanced it. And so, you know, we we have been the poster children of the nation for foolishness <laughs> here, in, here in Georgia. Um, so so those micro um, aggressions and hate, um, racism, um, blatant racism in your face, um, you know, that has been un, un, unfortunately uh, a part of our daily lives. Um, here in Georgia, we, it was where we witnessed on national TV the death of Ahmaud Aubrey, and so you know all of that stuff, you know, continues to to plague our airways, our our our, our existence, our lives. We're just at a point at, at at this particular time. We really have to number one, which is why we need these women. We have we we now understand. We have to um, infuse this pipeline of candidates and have people at the table that's going to have the interest of a, a, a huge variety of faces and people. You know, Atlanta was also the scene for, you know, the, the shooting and the mass shooting of, of the um, of the spot right. of, of from the Asian community. So we have a kid, Jennifer, we've been the poster child. Of, of all of these hateful things that have, that has, that's been going on, you know, we understand that um, the only way we're going to get a change, we got to change who's at these seats and who's making decisions, who's at the table, who's in the sheriff department, who's in the DA's department, who's in, you know, the tax commission office, who's at the school board. When you're talking about our children on these and going to school virtually, we have to make sure, and I think people 
uh, really realizing and recognizing there's a role for me and I have to figure out how to be a part of this of this change if we want change to come because they're not letting up. Right. No, they're not letting up. And the thing is, is that the people who should be at the center of this fight are the people who have probably the most to fear. Right. Because other people can so easily just say, well, this isn't important. Right. You know, you know, my life isn't at risk, you know, not necessarily. So this is not the most crucial thing we need to focus on. You know, these kind of, you know, the rhetoric and the racism and all the things that are putting people's lives at danger. So, I mean, I have to be frank with you. Everybody doesn't care about gender parity or racial parity, right, in an elected office. You know, most people don't care, (laughs) except people who are in those groups. But we can't just rely on the people who are in the position in those marginalized communities, you know, women and people of color and women of color to make this happen, right? Because we want to go beyond parity, right, with racial parity and gender parity in elected office. How do you... I mean, is there messaging to convince them that they should care? And what about the people who aren't running for office? How can we or, you know, they support this effort? We have to show everybody, just the run of the the the, the everyday common Joe, that you have a role in, in our democracy. You have a role in the quality of life for your community. You have a role. And and I really saw that play itself out again because of Black Lives Matter. Immediately after Black Lives Matter, we went into the presidential election and then here in Georgia, the U.S. runoffs. And, and you had the messaging around the runoff that Georgia would, would be the one to help change the democracy of this country. Right. So everybody had this buy in. Jennifer, we got to create the buy in for people. We have to show them that they have a role. We have to show you every day, you, Jennifer, that you make a difference. In, and when you get up in the morning, that if you could just focus on one thing that you could do to make this world and this country better, what would that one thing be? It doesn't have to be anything big. It could be a simple phone call. It could be words of encouragement. It could be a $5 donation. But what we have to do, Jennifer, is convince you and tell you that you have something that you have to do every day to help us. And so if you do your little small part and we continue to do the parts that we're doing, it's all going to meet up and come together and yield these results that we've never seen before. And that's what we've seen. Well, thank you so much, Rhonda Bringers, for joining me. I, I, you know, I'm, I'll follow Vote Run Lead, you know, through the midterms and through the rest of this year. And again, thank you so much and keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Jennifer, for having me. I look forward to working with you more in the future. But more importantly, thank you for your interest and the role that we all could play to make this world a little better for each of us.